0: All right, good morning again. If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, you can turn over to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is where we'll be spending our time this morning. We've been going through this psalm a few weeks in the men's morning study, and there's one particular section that I was really excited about and want to share with all of you. In 2010, Jacob and Alex and I were on a short mission to Chile and Peru, and toward the end of that trip, some Christians from a local Calvary Chapel that we were with brought us along to be a part of their outreach to Lurigancho Prison in Lima. After our visit, we learned that National Geographic had recently aired a documentary on what they called the world's three toughest prisons, listing, as I recall, Lurigancho as number two. It was an experience that really stands alone in my mind as I think back on life and just different things that have happened. Of the many thoughts and images that I remember about that day, really there are two that always rise to the top when I think about it. The first is that I remember we walked into one of the buildings. It's kind of hard to explain, but effectively Lurigancho Prison is like some city blocks that they just put walls around and said, hey, this is the prison now. It was originally meant to house, I think, 2,000 people or 2,500 inmates, and when we were there, there were over 7,000 or 8,000 people there. And so what the government decided to do is they would just sort of corner off a certain number of city blocks, wall them up, put some guards on the outside, and let the prisoners effectively run their own prison from within, which is why you can imagine it's a terrible place to be. And so we walked into this one building it was where many men lived, and it also served for a place where some of the Christians in the prison would gather to hold little church services. And entering in, it was so surprising and shocking because the smell was so putrid and so rotten uh, walking in. I remember thinking to myself immediately, uh, thinking, well, this is what death smells like. Some, someone or something dies in here or has died in here. It was a terrible Terrible smell. And the second thought that always rises to the top is that I remember the gnawing thought of how awful it would would be to have to stay in this prison. For this to be the place where you had to live and stay. And that thought was present in all of our minds because when we arrived at the prison that day, we had to surrender our passports to the guards at the gates in order to go inside the prison walls. And in exchange, they gave us a little brass coin to keep in our pocket. And it was explained to us very clearly that without that coin, we would not be allowed to exit. It was our ticket out. And so the whole time, all of us were stressfully just going like this at all moments, making sure we had that coin in our pockets and wondering, and I'm sure the inmates have figured out that we, we have this coin and perhaps they could get this coin. And so it was a little bit stressful. And at the end of our visit, It was such a relief to be able to walk back through the gates as free men and not confined to such an awful, awful place. Now Psalm 107 is going to take all of us into a prison cell today. It's going to walk us hand in hand to give us a view into a prison cell. And it's a prison much worse than Lurigancho or Alcatraz or Sing Sing. It's the prison of sin that once laid claim to your life and to your future Or perhaps it still does lay claim to you. Perhaps you still are a prisoner in that cell and you may just not realize it. But the good news is that this text is not going to leave us in that prison cell. No, Psalm 107 is a beautiful song about rescue, about redemption. It describes and celebrates the work that God has done to save human beings from their guilt if they are willing to call out to him. And so as we begin this text, we're going to start in verse 1, going to verse 3 and then jump down to verse 10. I'm excited to talk about redemption today and have a portrait of that in our minds. But before we continue, let's pray once more. Lord, we are thankful for this morning and the life that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what your word says, that the spirit would be moving heart to heart and through this place, Lord, to reveal your goodness and your mercy. Lord, we serve uh, a magnificent God of compassion, and we want to remember that, we want to think on that, we want to celebrate that, and we pray that today, Lord, we would be, as Christians, Lord, that we would be invigorated by reading about what kind of God you are. And if there is anyone here, Lord, who's not a Christian, they are still trapped in their sin, we pray, Lord, that your word would reveal to them their need for salvation, but that you are... Such a greater Savior than they are a sinner. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts and that Holy Spirit, you would operate in their minds and in their lives to bring them to yourself, that they would be saved, Lord, and be set free, given abundant life through Jesus your Son. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So the psalm opens up in verse 1, and here's what it says It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And so, this is the purpose of this song. It's going to go on in some length, but this is a song that calls together all of those who have been saved. And those who have been saved and redeemed, it calls them to think about what it means to be redeemed. And then having thought about it, to publicly praise God for who he is and what he's done. That's what this song is all about, according to the writer. And to help us understand all of this, to help us understand our God as rescuer, and to understand what redemption means, the psalmist will then give us four different portraits that delve into what redemption is. He gives us four snapshots of what redemption is like and what God has accomplished in order to rescue us. Redemption is portrayed seeing the rescue of refugees who were lost in a wilderness Redemption is portrayed as we see diseased men about to die, healed of their sickness and restored to life. It's portrayed as we see sailors in a terrible storm at sea, rescued by God who calms the wind and the waves. And redemption is portrayed as we see captives in the worst of prisons broken out by the power of God. Those are the four little portraits of redemption we receive in this song. And that portrait of prisoners in their prison is the one we want to spend our time with this morning. And there are at least three reasons why we should focus on this and think through it. First, because God wants us to understand salvation and he wants us to understand his loving kindness. In fact, the psalm ends by saying that if you are wise then you will observe and you will study the compassion of God and that you will begin to understand it, that you will guard it in your heart like a treasure and keep it safe there, reflecting upon it often. A second reason to look at this passage is that if we have been redeemed by God, then we should say so. I love that at the beginning in those verses there. It says, let the redeemed of God say so. Not just know so or not just feel so, but say so. Say to others that we have been redeemed and what that means. To be saved means we have been delivered from the greatest of dangers, rescued from the greatest of enemies. And that is a message that must not be kept silent. We shouldn't keep that to ourselves, but it is to be broadcast publicly to whoever will listen. It's the little song that little Christian children learn, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. A light is meant to shine out in the darkness. And the story of redemption, of how God has redeemed you and me, is something that should be shared publicly. We should say so to whoever will listen. And third, we want to study this portrait of redemption today in case there is someone here who still is a prisoner of sin, who still find themselves guilty before a holy God. And if you are here and have not put your faith in Christ and made Jesus king of your life, well, the Bible declares that you are headed toward death, still guilty of that sin, and that will require that you be judged and sent into a Christless eternity in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. That's just reality. That's just the truth of Scripture. But today, Psalm 107 declares and explains that there is a rescuer who has gone to incredible lengths to save you and to give you life if you will call out to him for help and for mercy. If you will repent and turn to this God, he will save you. Well, we begin our story here in verse 10. And we're going to peer into the gloom of a prison cell. It says, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons. We're going to find out their crime in just a moment. But for now, let's look at these prisoners. It says they are bound. And in case we are wondering or it isn't clear, this is a prison cell. That word is defined as a person who is confined, especially in regard to crimes or as a prisoner of war. And so they're in a prison cell, but this isn't just a 24-hour hold. They're not just in the drunk tank for the night. What was the name of the guy on the old Andy Griffith show? Was it Otis that was always in the drunk tank? That's not what we're seeing here at all. This is no casual holding cell. It says they sat in darkness. And that word loses a little bit of its meaning to us in the English, but that term means to be settled, to establish a dwelling. And so they are living there now. The trial is over. The sentence has been decreed from the bench. And now this chamber that we're looking into has become their reality. And it is a bleak and terrifying and hopeless reality to be sure. These prisoners find themselves not only guilty but also imprisoned. And not only are they imprisoned but they are locked in a cell. No playtime in the yard for them, no work release, no cable TV, none of that. No privileges for good behavior. Not only are they in prison, not only are they locked in a cell, but they are also bound with chains. And so they're tied up in a cell, in a prison, convicted with no possibility of appeal or parole. Pretty bad situation. But then there's the ominous revelation that they are not alone in their cell. It says they sit in the shadow of death. And what does that mean? Well, the picture that's being painted for us is that death himself is standing in the doorway of this cell blocking any light that tries to get in. If they want to leave this cell, they're going to have to go through death who's standing over them and and shadowing them, watching after them. And what he's doing is day and night standing watch there Powering over them, blocking them from any hope of escape, and he's just waiting out the days till he can claim them for himself and take them to his own prison and bring them down forever. Now, remember, this isn't just supposed to be a scary story. It's not the Halloween psalm that they threw in there just to round out the calendar. It's not Edgar Allan Poe's one psalm that he added to the Psalter. No, this psalm is a study in just how powerful is the mercy of God and is the rescue of God the lengths that God will go to give mercy to the people of the earth. It's talking about where God will go in order to rescue people. It's talking about what he can do to deliver people. And so we are meant to put ourselves in that cell, bound by those chains, and experience a glimpse of the terror that is life apart from God. A life that is enslaved to sin, a life held captive by the devil, a life that is headed toward death. And the reality of this psalm is that this is exactly the condition of every person on the planet unless and until they are saved by Jesus Christ. You may think, well, I, you know, where many of you probably have the testimony that before you were Christians, at first you thought, well, I don't feel like I'm trapped. I don't feel captive. I don't feel like I'm dead in trespasses and sin. And yet that is exactly the condition of our hearts and our lives until we turn to God and are saved from our sin. The scriptures declare that we are all trapped and bound, that we are prisoners of sin and that we are sentenced to death. And perhaps at this point, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're thinking, well, I don't deserve to be on death row like the people in this story. I don't deserve this kind of imprisonment or this kind of sentence. Well, let's find out exactly why these prisoners are there. What was their crime? Look at verse 11. It says, because they rebelled against the words of God, And despise the counsel of the Most High. And so on one hand we think, well, they weren't murderers. They weren't uh, terrorists. What, What were they doing? They were rebelling against the words of God and despising the counsel of the Most High. In one sense we think, well, that doesn't seem like such a big deal until we realize that what we're talking about is the king of heaven and earth and people rebelling against him. And so what we see here is that these prisoners were actually there for the highest crime of all, treason against the throne of God Most High. You know, treason is something that effectively all cultures in all eras recognize as unacceptable and largely unforgivable. Really, it's a, an offense in a category all its own, right? And here the psalmist takes us out of the context of just our local city or our state, even our nation. And he takes us up to the very highest court where we see the highest king who deserves the highest praise... But instead of receiving that, he received from the people in this story, not worship and obedience, but rebellion and scorn. The language there says that they provoked the Lord and his word. God, as king, had shared not only his commandments with them, but his counsel with them, meaning that God had given the people of earth direction and purpose and a course of action for their lives. He shared from the throne what he desired for them and what he commanded of them, what he expected of them. And he had done so with grace and with truth, but they despised the Lord and they rose up in rebellion with the ultimate hope of dethroning this king and crowning themselves as the rulers over their own lives. And so it says that they scorned him, they rejected him. It was treason of the highest sort. And this is not the description of a few anarchists, right? This isn't just a few people that we're, you know, circling in on, that the psalmist is talking to us about. This is the verdict and this is the condition of every single man and woman who has ever lived. This is who we are as human beings. The Bible explains that all of us, we, like sheep, have gone astray. That we have left God's path to follow our own path. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. None who does good. And so we realize here as we look into this portrait, look into this prison cell that we are the rebels. We are the ones who are guilty of treason before a holy and a perfect God and king. And treason is the highest crime a person can commit against a state or a kingdom. And that is why the people in our text find themselves in their prison cells, shackled in the dark, guarded by death, and they are absolutely guilty. Not just of one mistake made in haste. It wasn't just that they accidentally blew through a stop sign and something bad happened. This is not just some youthful error that they had made. It was a repeated campaign of rebellion against the most high king in their hearts and in their lives. Or they kept saying to the king of heaven and earth, "No." No, no. I will be my own king. I will have my own throne. You may not have rule over me. I'm going to provoke your word. I'm going to reject your rule. And that's why they find themselves in this position. Now, taking a look at this scene... We might wonder why these prisoners are allowed to live at all and weren't just executed on the spot. Typically, those who are guilty of treason find themselves executed rather quickly, right? Well, look at verse 12. It says, Therefore he, speaking of God, brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Now, I think that even here, we can see God's incredible mercy and grace on display. These traitors... Clearly deserved death, even by human reckoning. If you brought this scene and this situation into the earthly realm and, you know, found a kingdom somewhere and you found people that were behaving this way to the king, we would understand, even on the human, you know, human society level, well, of course, I understand why the king had these people executed. It would make sense to us, even by human reckoning. But instead, what do we see? We see that the king allows them to live that they may be humbled. You know, their problem had been rooted in pride. In pride, they rose up, wanting to set up their own kingdom, but their rebellion had been overcome. They had been put down by the power of God, and now the Lord will bring them down to see who they really are and what the consequences of their rejection of him would be. Because in the end, the reason God doesn't just execute them on the spot in this story is that God does not want them to perish, but to be saved and to be bought back And to be brought back from what they have done. It's that God wants to rescue them. He wants to restore them. He wants to bring them back into his family and into his kingdom. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 13 says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. Now this is a remarkable verse. First, we see something beautiful and incredible happen in the hearts of the prisoners. They call out to the Lord. They ask for mercy from the very king that they had warred against for so long. They, it is the height of humility contrasted with the height of their pride and arrogance a few verses ago. These same people who were so proud and so arrogant who said, I'm going to topple the king of heaven and earth, put myself on his throne. I'm going to against everything that he said, everything that he shared, everything that he's done. And I'm going to be in charge of my own life. I'm going to rule my own existence. And yet, here we see the height of humility. That they would turn to that same king from their prison cell and say, will you help me? Will you save me? There's no one else who can help me. There's no one else who can buy me back, who can bring me back, who can restore me to life. It's such a remarkable contrast. There's a powerful example, or this is a powerful example of what Solomon said in Proverbs 3, verse 34. He said, surely God scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. And these people in our text and in our portrait here are examples of both the scornful and the humble and how this principle is true. Humility is the way to spiritual growth. Humility is something that gets God's attention in a considerable way. But even more remarkable than the humility of the prisoners is the response of the king. He saves those who deserve no saving. These people don't deserve to be saved. These people don't deserve to be pardoned. These people don't deserve to be helped. In fact, when it says that he saved them, it means that he went and rescued them. What kind of a king fights to save the people who tried to take his throne? And over and over and over again, as he was patient with them and shared with them and gave them counsel and gave them commandments and gave them time, over and over again they said, no, we want you gone. We want to be in the place of power. We want you toppled off of your throne so that we can try to set ourselves up there. And the king goes and fights to save these people. Only our God is a God like that. Only the God of the Bible has this kind of character of mercy and grace and compassion. Where he didn't require that they pay him back in some way before he was willing to take their call. But he waited and was listening for them to call out to him uh, for help and for rescue. Let's look at verse 14. It says, He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. And broke their chains in pieces. And let's also read verse 16 because it goes together. It says, For he has broken the gates of bronze and he has cut the bars of iron in two. Now notice this. This is not a pardon. This is a prison break. He's not this is not a pardon at all. The Lord didn't just put a phone call in to the warden to have these guys released. That's not what that is not what is happening. He didn't go and unlock their chains or unlock the bars or unlock the gates. It says he broke them. He broke them out. It's a prison break. You know, when we think of rescue missions... Often we think of, you know, the innocent hiker, right, lost in the woods and a group coming together to find them. And we think of people arm in arm, combing mile after mile to save the unfortunate, you know, hiker or the person that's lost out there. And it's a noble and inspiring thing that we see when it's on the news, right? And we're always so excited. Hey, they found the kid out in Yosemite or they found the family or they found whoever. And it's a noble thing. But a prison break... That's a scandalous thing. Recently, that guy El Chapo, the cartel guy, right? He keeps breaking out of prison. And the uncomfortable thing that gets brought up is that obviously he can't just break out of prison on his own. He's obviously receiving help. And it's a scandalous thing. Who in the prison is helping this notorious, terrible criminal break out over and over again? Who did he buy off? Who did he corrupt in order to help him break out of this prison when clearly everyone agrees this guy needs to be in prison? He's a notorious, terrible criminal. The, the sentence has been cast. It's clear that this guy needs to be removed from society. And so someone is doing a terrible thing helping him break out. It's a scandal. And, but that's what we are seeing here. We're seeing a scandalous prison break. You know, we may even be able to understand someone being willing to break into a prison in order to save an innocent person, right? I mean, we could understand that. We could get there. But the people in our text who are being busted out are by no means innocent. They're absolutely guilty. They are serial criminals, serial treasonous rebels. They are guilty against the very person who came to break them out. And if we follow this picture... We see that God had to come not just through gates and bars, not just into darkness, but what else did he have to come through? He had to come through death in order to rescue mankind. It says that they sat in the shadow of death. The psalmist wants to picture just how terrible this situation is, just how doomed these people are, just how condemned they are. That death is standing there, blocking out the light, waiting to claim them, and God comes through The gates, comes through the bars, comes through the chains, comes through death himself in order to rescue mankind, in order to save you and me. God had to leave his throne, come down into our reality, come down into darkness, come through death so that we could be saved from death and given a new life. And the Lord did so with unreserved intensity. He poured out all, He took all our sin upon Himself. He died as our substitute. To redeem us, not because we are worthy, not because we are innocent, not because it was cruel and unusual punishment. We deserved every bit of the sentence that we received. The wages of our sin is death, and Christ said, I will take it all on myself so that you can be saved and redeemed. You know, when it says there, He broke their chains, the word used means that He ripped them off forcefully. When it says that He broke the gates, a different word is used it's a word that means destroyed or crushed. When it says he cut the bars, it means they were sheared, they were smashed, that they no longer existed is the terms that the dictionaries use. And you know what that means? It means that these redeemed prisoners would never have to go back to this prison because the prison was destroyed. It didn't even exist anymore. They were rescued from not only their past rebellions, but from their future imperfections as well. And as Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who, who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, well, I get to go out now and live however my, I want? Of course not. The Bible teaches very clearly that if we are redeemed, it means we have turned from sin toward God, that we've abandoned our sin and that we are going toward God, following after Him. We think of the parable of the prodigal son. He was there. He had effectively said to his dad, I wish you were dead. I want to be in charge of my own life. Give me my inheritance. He went off. He squandered his inheritance. He ruined his life. He found himself trapped in servitude, feeding pigs, eating the pig slop. He came to his senses. He says, I'm going to return to my father. I'm going to go in humility and ask him to help me. What he didn't do is say, well, I'm going to have... My father helped me, but I'm also going to just sort of summer in the pig slop again. I'm going to go back and forth, and I'm going to call that redemption. I'm going to call that being restored into fellowship with my father. No, he said, he, I'm going to come in abject humility, in uh, poorness of spirit, come to my father and say, please restore me, and I'm going to be within my father's house again. Paul would sum it up very clearly. He says, should we sin that grace would abound? God forbid that we would think that. And so when we see that Christ has destroyed the prison in this image, when we see that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that's not at all a license to sin. It just shows us the power of God and the extent to which he has gone to redeem us. And that we as people who have been redeemed, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry that at some point Jesus is going to look down and say, ah, you messed up again. Okay, back to prison with you. I'm done. You know what? I take it back. I don't want to pardon you. I don't want to rescue you. I'm going to send you back to that prison again. That's impossible because God came and He destroyed those chains. He destroyed that cell. He destroyed that prison and He destroyed the power of death. That death no longer has any claim to you. And that now we are recipients of Christ's everlasting life. Our King came into the dark through death to save the guilty and to set us free. That's what redemption means. You and I are the treasonous rebels. We're the ones who were under death's lock, lock and key, but Christ came to redeem us and to redeem anyone else who will call on his name. In the epistles we read this, 2 Timothy 1:10. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus our savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Through death, that through death Christ might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's what describes the redeemed now. That's what we're seeing explained in this picture in Psalm 107. That is the work of God and the power of God given for us, given for you and me. And this is a glimpse into the incredible depths of redemption. Realizing this, or reminding ourselves again of it, should lead us to the same response every time. It's verse 15. It says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. This line is repeated four times in the psalm. After every story of redemption, this line is repeated, calling us, if you're a Christian, if you've been redeemed, to give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. And to talk about the wonderful works of God to the children of men, to do so publicly with excitement and with celebration. The writer is calling us to not only consider these things, but to celebrate them and to broadcast them, to do so publicly with passion and thanksgiving. This is not meant to be some trite lip service for some generic goodness. Oh yeah, God is good. But it is to be a time of urgent public praise to the Lord because of the wonderful personal work that God has done for you and for me to realize that I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and now I want to turn and praise God for what he's done and share with others his wonderful works. When we think about what God has done to redeem us from our own guilt and from our own sin, would we not consider it treason to fail to thank him and to tell others what he has done Wouldn't that be a a terrible, terrible affront to this God who has saved us to refuse to celebrate him and to share with others about him and to praise him for his grace? You know, in 1974, I didn't know this, but in 1974, Yankees owner George Steinbrenner was indicted on 14 criminal counts in connection with Richard Nixon's reelection campaign. Who knew? He pleaded guilty to both illegal contributions and obstruction of justice, serious charges. Though he was given no jail time, people like him don't usually get jail time. He's given a hefty fine, but Ronald Reagan would later grant Steinbrenner a pardon, restoring his uh, rights and clearing his felon status. And in the closing days of his second term, Reagan pardoned Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner's response, here's what he said to the press. I am very grateful to President Reagan for his confidence in me, he said. I will be certain to try and not let him down. Hardly a statement worthy of the grace he had received, right? And it's not like St- George Steinbrenner wasn't a colorful character. But it feels like he was just, oh, I gotta say something. Ah, oh, here's what I'll say. And he gave the most bland, the most vanilla, the most impersonal thank you to a man who, who cleared his record. A record of which he said, I, I'm guilty. I plead guilty to all of these charges. I deserve to have some of my rights stripped away. I deserve to be punished. And then this man comes along, Ronald Reagan, and for whatever reason, determines to pardon him and restore you into citizenship and, you know, all of the rights therein. And he says, yeah, okay. I'm glad he had confidence in me, he said. I certainly hope I would have tried to say something a bit more meaningful for such a gift. And then the psalmist takes me by the hand and brings me back to the rubble where my prison once stood. My own personal Lurigancho. He says, hey, this is where your soul was. This is where you deserve to stay because of the guilt of your sin. And then... The psalmist explains that God poured out a costly mercy so that he could rescue me from my own guilt and from the own, my own penalty that I deserved and change me from being a separatist and a subverter into a servant and a son. That's the goodness that this song is talking about. And that's a goodness worth talking about today. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Let's pray.